What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I think you're full Welcome back to Still Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. On today's episode, I'm with my good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Well, my arms are a little little worn out. I gotta lift these heavy hands all the time. So on this podcast... I don't think it's a good pun. I don't think our listeners are gonna understand the pun. It's, no, it's, it's the title of the, of the thread. So they'll get it, I'm sure. <laughs> On this podcast, we're going to talk about the games we played this week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then our feature game of the week, Tungaru. Mark, what did you play this week? I played a whole bunch of games of the crew, the quest for Planet Nine. This was a special request from the Handwerker. And it actually got me to throw money at Board Game Arena. Because Board Game Arena is, unlike Tabletopia, which gates off a lot of its different games and a lot of its game modes... We've been playing Board Game Arena on and off for quite some time, and I've never encountered a paywall, with the exception of the missions past 10 for the crew. And on a couple of occasions when playing the crew on Board Game Arena, and they stop you at mission 10 saying, oh well, you're just plebs, you don't get to play those missions anymore. It was especially requested by the Hunworker, so I figured, whatever, I'll throw some money at it. And we also introduced it to Louis, who had never played the crew before. And this was another opportunity I had to, to teach the crew the quest for Planet Nine, and I had the same moment of dread that I always have when teaching any trick-taking game, which is, have you ever played a trick-taking game before? Because it's not as though the concept of a trick or the actual practice of playing any trick-taking game tends to be considerably complicated. Now, the scoring can be incredibly Baroque, but that is not true of the crew. But it's just, it's so hard, I, in my experience, to explain to somebody, okay, this is what a trick is. This is what Trump is. You know, there's a number of, of, of weird terminology. Now, it's not as arcane as something like crib, for example. And I do not want to offend the traditional crib players. It's just, it's a little arcane. It's a touch on the specific side. But the great thing about teaching someone a trick-taking game, if they've never played a trick-taking game, is is that now you've taught them a thousand games. <laughs> Fair enough. It's still burdensome and strange. But, no, Louis took to it brilliantly. It was at the point where he knew when we were trying to void a suit, he knew when we were trying to draw, uh, draw out a, a trump, and when we are doing all those other things, that I am normally not able to do in a normal trick-taking game. I, I'm that player in normal trick-taking games that I play a card and everyone's like, ugh, like clearly indicating that I've screwed up all their plans because they expected me to play rationally, and my inability to play rationally has screwed them over, even though this is a competitive game. I'm that guy. Well, he's definitely played trick-taking games before. I've, we've gone over with his with his family, and he's they're big into trick taking games. So I'm sure he would gravitate to it quite quickly. He did very well. Uh, in traditional Louis fashion, he seemed somewhat disappointed that the game did not involve any direct conflict because that is very much his bag. But nonetheless, he he took to it swimmingly, and he was definitely one of the stronger players at the table. Although, again, when I'm at, when I'm playing a trick taking game, almost anybody can be one of the stronger players at the table in comparison. And I just want to emphasize: we talked about the crew a lot, but I want to emphasize one thing that I really do appreciate about the crew as compared to other trick taking games. Although I enjoy trick taking games, for some reason in my head. They are a filler-length endeavor. I know this is a prejudice not shared by the wider culture, because there are people who will play bridge all day and all night, literally. And there are people who will play euchre all the time, and whatever other regional trick-taking game you happen to play. But for me, a trick-taking game is like a 45-minute-to-an-hour thing. And there, are the, the one that I'd experienced previously when in Cambridge that was popular locally, amongst the gamers anyway, was Wizard. 
And Wizard would take forever, because first you play a hand with one card, and then you play a hand with two cards, and you play a hand with three cards, blah, 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 blah. And so it'd be these, you know, 80 to 90 minute games of trick-taking. And for me, that's a little bit too much. One of the great things about the crew is you just play as long as you want. I mean, any hand is not going to take very long. Some missions are going to be succeeded or failed very, very, very quickly. And you just stop when you want to stop. Like, nobody plays through the campaign in one sitting, I don't think. That's certainly not the expectation. And so you get this marvelous freedom to just play a couple missions, play a hand or two, and then be done with it. If you're so inclined, or keep going. And so that's just another aspect of why the crew is so accessible and friendly and nice. Not only is it the fact that it's cooperative, but just the ability to decide how much game you want to commit yourself to. And I'm very glad that there is a slick implementation available, even though I did kind of have to pay for it, which is not awesome. And I hope some of that money, by the way, I haven't done my research, but I hope some of that money gets gets back to the designer or the developers. It's probably all just pocketed by the publisher, but who knows? I think it should be getting back to me. I'm still waiting for that check, especially after some stuff coming <laughs> up soon. So that was the crew, the quest for Planet Nine. All right. My copy of Micro Macro Crime City, Mark, finally came in, and... It is as amazing as I thought it would be, and even more so because my partner gravitated to it immediately. She's right in there looking ahead. She's like got some of the things solved before we even flip the cards up. (laughs) It is a fantastic game. It's uh, put out by Johanna Stitch and published by Pegasus Spiel. So right now on uh, the Board Game Geek forums, there's this interesting thread, Mark, and I'm interested to know what you think because there are some what – I don't want to get into what is a game and what is not a game. It's oh, dear more Lord, no, of, you, you cannot get me to touch that topic. No, no, it is more of what a board game geek is willing to allow as a an entry. An entry, that's the word I'm trying to think of. So, you know, you can't have Rubik's Cube or Sudoku, mm-hmm. but Rush Hour, you've heard of Rush Hour with yes. the car. That's not... That's not in the database. Mm-hmm. There's some of, uh, like the, some, like, spinoff games of those that have a little more into it that's there. Uh, and do you, Reiner Knizia has a whole line of Brains games, or not, I shouldn't say games, but a whole line of, of a title called Brains that don't have an entry either because they're, they're considered, you know, like these solo puzzly type things that are not a game. And the talk, and the, the person that posted this thread was, you know, well, micro macro falls under that same category. Mm. There's no win, you know, there's no way to win, you know, either you, you solve it or you don't. No one gets, and it's just an interesting thread. So if you're interested in that kind of talk, then check it out. Otherwise, micro macro is this like four by six sheet fold out map of black and white drawings of death and mayhem. And then you have all these different cases like little mini decks from anywhere from five to seven cards and you work your way through all the clues. And I wouldn't want to live in this city, Mark. Because <laughs> you scan through the drawings, the amount of accidents and death and destruction. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the population of this city is halved weekly. And that is what I think of micro macro crime city. I think I know the answer to this, but is there any replayability to the cases? No, Hmm. but the one thing I am very much looking forward to, Mark, is once I get through all the cases and sort of know the map more, actually, I'm I'm wondering if you could actually make up your own sort of cases, like just incorporate some of the drawings and sort of like try to link them together in certain ways that they haven't yet. And I don't know, I'm just sort of, for whatever reason, really looking forward to it. It was like one of the cases, I don't know, maybe that's spoilers. Anyways, just say, you know, bank robbery is pretty generic. There's a bank robbery and you got to sort of, you know, follow these guys through the city and they might go down one subway tunnel and you got to find them somewhere else. And then it was just, it was very interesting. That does sound really neat. I'd be interested to maybe take a look at it when you're done with it. I don't know if it's the kind of thing that would appeal to me, but I would definitely like to see how it's executed. I'm glad you're enjoying Micro Macro. I pulled out Flick Wars. Flick Wars is the weirdly shaped box of strategic flicking action that also has a reasonably engaging solo mode. And I felt like playing something war game, tabletop wargamey in the miniatures vein. And Flick Wars always struck me as vaguely adjacent to tabletop miniature sensibilities in the sense that you pay for units and deploy them in a very specific way and they different uh, they have different special powers, which I know is very common in the board game system. But the fact that there's terrain... That modifies things as well. Kind of reminds me of a tabletop miniatures game. I tried one of the harder difficulty levels. It was still very easy. The different factions that you can play against are rated by by difficulty level. 
but I suppose next time I should just jump into one of the hardest ones instead of just working my way up from the bottom. And I very much enjoyed it. Flick Wars is not necessarily to your taste because it requires subtlety and finesse as opposed to Walker Flick Hard, Walker Smash, which is, it's a preference. I can understand why you're drawn to catacombs. You know, those nice little boundary walls means you can just flick with reckless abandon and know that nothing will get destroyed. But Flick Wars is all about flicking so you can get close enough to then fire with this very, very small, maddeningly small ruler. It's one of those things where you look at the the, the ruler very much like Ascending Empires. Ascending Empires was also that pseudo 4X flicking game where you look at the range and you figure there's no way on earth that I'm ever going to be able to get something to within that range. And sure enough, it works out. It's, you know, it's a well-calibrated system, and the ranges are difficult, but actually attainable. So I really like the Flick Wars economy. I like the way the AI works. It's very, very simple to execute, which is very much one of my key priorities. And another key priority for a solo system is, does it feel like the actual game? And in Flick Wars, you're still flicking things, so yeah, it still feels like the actual game. And the table presence is undeniable, and so I very much enjoyed it. It's a very, very expensive flicking game, mind you, and a very strangely shaped box. I don't know why, but it's one of those things where, uh, you know, not Calax friendly. I suppose that's the disclaimer that you should have in any board game that does not fit onto Calax. You should probably even have to put it as a, as, as an emblazoned logo on the front of the box to, to warn consumers. But nonetheless, I'm very happy to own a copy of Flick Wars, and I enjoyed my solo playing of it. My uh, Board Game Arena news is that they've got a bunch of interesting games in this week. Came off of Alpha into Beta. One is No Thanks. It's a very interesting, like, press your luck type quick game that you can play very quickly. They also have Paris Connection, which is this very uh, fast-moving, easy-to-teach uh, railway game. You're either placing trains or you're exchanging. Well, sorry, there's like five different colors of trains, and they have a set number of pieces. And you're either placing trains out on the board, trying to connect cities to make those particular colors worth more, or you're exchanging other colors you have for like one blue for two purple. And then at the end of the game, you know, whatever trains you have, they're worth as many points as you've put on the board. Very interesting, quick little connection game. And Dungeon Pets, Mark. I love Dungeon Lords, but I've never had a chance to play Dungeon Pets, so I'm very much looking forward to finally trying to get uh, Dungeon Pets played. And that is the stuff on Board Game Arena this week. Okay, well, on that topic, we're going to be talking about this again, but uh, I I feel like it's time for me to address the serious problem in my life, and that is the Nippon problem. So you've talked about Nippon before. We've played it on Board Game Arena. And this is not, I don't have a problem with the country. I have no beef with the people of Japan. In fact, I find your constitutional structure fascinating. But anyway, so I got invited to an asynchronous game of Nippon that is still ongoing. And I think it's still going to be ongoing until about 2034. And what this is emphasizing to me, and I kind of had this suspicion while we were playing Dinosaur Tea Party, asynchronous games are not for me. Capital N, capital F, capital M. Because especially when it comes to like a medium weight Euro game. Because every time it's my turn, I get an email that it's my turn. And it's like homework. And it's like I've got this job and I've got to check in and I don't want to wait too long because then I feel like I'm holding up what's already a laboriously long process and I don't want to feel like I'm holding other people up. So then I have to check in and I have to relearn how to play the game. I have to re-internalize what the table, uh, table setup is because there are a billion different moving parts, you know, like in your average Euro game. And I don't remember what I was planning on doing. I don't remember whether I had a a grand three-worker scheme where first I do this thing and then I do this other thing. And so it ends up turning what could be something with even mild strategic horizons into the most purely tactical affair imaginable. And I, I think to a certain extent that's my fault. And that's the fault of my attention span. But it's also, I think, just a nature of the asynchronous format, unless you're willing to devote the necessary mental energies, or maybe note-keeping. Maybe the keeping of aggressive notes would work it. Couple that with the sense of dislocation I have already from the digital medium. Couple that with the sense of dislocation from what my opponents are doing. Oh my goodness. We're going to be playing this game forever, Walker. I'm going to be, like, I'm going to be getting notifications... That it's my turn in Nippon until I'm cold in my grave. Well, it was slightly by design on my part. I, I wanted you to play Nippon because uh, the next thing I'm going to be talking about is Carnegie. And I just sort of want you to compare the two, the sort of action selection thought that you have to go into the same sort of Nippon. You sort of have to gauge what workers are out there and what action to take in that particular turn and how, how to like sort of generate an income. I think there's a lot of similarities between those two games. And it's uh, going to be interesting to see. Why didn't you just ask me to read the rules? 
Because honestly, I don't think that my my understanding of the game has been enhanced by this slow drip, torturous procedure of weeks and weeks of doing these tiny little disconnected little actions. Honestly, honestly, I'm compelled, right? And again, it's like this job. I get these email notifications saying, like, oh, Mark, time to do more of your homework. I can't bow out now. I'm stuck. And it's That's right. You're awful. locked in. I'm and, locked and in. And if you quit, you're you're disappointing. You know, five other people. Yeah. So so I loved I loved your 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 pain sustains me. And I can't even so. say anything substantive about the game. I mean, I will say that Nippon was released by What's Your Game, and it's a very What's Your Game game. What's Your Game put out you know a series of middleweight Euro games all in the span of about three four years, and all of them have interesting elements. My favorite of them is Asgard, but all of them have these like twenty step set up procedures where this these five stacks of tokens have to be shuffled these five stacks of tokens have to be set up in ascending order these two in descending order unless of course you're playing with four players in which case you want to remove the three and the four not the two and the five anyway they're all they're all of of a piece i'm glad the board game arena at least took care of the setup i don't want to talk about it too much because we haven't finished yet but uh we're never gonna finish the one interesting thing i like in the pawn is the one because you have a limited number of – you can reset your workers at any time. Yes. But there is a limited number of workers that can go in. And when you do reset, you lose all your sort of manufacturing – all your coal, which you need to run your your Factors. companies, yeah. and you lose all your money. So it's one of these things where I can generate all this income, but I can't do anything with it. So I got to sort of you know, you know know wait and do some other actions. I, thought, I just think that sort of mechanism is very interesting. I, I agree with you. That part is cool. And that tension is one thing, at least, that is preserved in the format, because I can look over and see, well, I've got this much money and this much coal left, but I also really don't like what's, what's available on offer. Slash, you also have to worry about overextending yourself because you pay your workers after you do the reset, not before. So if you have decent income, but you overextend yourself with workers, you're not going to end up with any money for the next round. That part's neat. I like that part. I'm just not able to connect any part of that to the rest of the broader game. And I blame you, Walker. I blame you for ruining the pawn. That is the pawn. And I talked about Carnegie already. I want to talk about Carnegie again. It's uh, designed by Xavier George and uh, published by Quint Games. I just think they're doing a, a great job here, Mark, what they've done, because just of, for the atmosphere that we're in right now with COVID and everyone having to stay home, they've brought this game onto Board Game Arena, and it's not even published yet. It's just like on Kickstarter right now, and they've given us the full game on Board Game Arena, so it gives people a chance to play it, play it with their friends, even while it's, it's you know, this is all still going on. I just think that they've just done a great job rolling this out and it is an excellent game. The more I play it, the more I love it. Like I said, it's got this very interesting uh, action selection mechanism where you pick an action and everybody does it, but it every action, it activates buildings, but not only that, it also either lets you pay for these donations, which is end game scoring stuff, or allows you to generate income. And how you generate income is sort of like pulling your workers back so you can use them in the buildings again. But you're sort of sending them on these missions in these different areas of land, like east, east, midwest, south areas of the map, right? And then, like I said, so when you're looking at what action to take, you sort of have to pair it up with, okay, well, what workers are going to be called back? I really want to do this action, but it's going to allow this other player to pull back five workers and get all this income. So it's really interesting sort of decision-making all the time. Hmm. When we had briefly discussed it not too long ago in an episode of Pledge of Indifference, you had expressed a concern that that it reminded you of On Mars in the sense that it was just mechanism piled upon mechanism piled upon mechanism. I assume that has not been borne out? Not really. I think that was because it was my first, my first game, and I was maybe a little bit overwhelmed the first time because there's all these things that slide out, and there's, you know, dozens of different buildings you can put in, and, and just that sort of mechanisms of of how you send your workers out and how they come back and how they generate income in different ways it's just it's a lot to internalize on your first game for sure i see well i'll be trying it soon i'm looking forward to trying carnegie glad you like it i played a second game of a billion suns interstellar fleet battles this is a review copy from osprey games this is the follow-up game from mike hutchison of Planet Smasher, who has done Gaslands and a number of other fascinating things i tried the beta the beta solo rules 
And I have to say that the solo rules are unsatisfyingly easy to game out in a sense to manipulate because A Billion Sons, to its credit, is very much about making money. It's about completing these contracts. And every game is going to have three different contracts, and so there's tremendous variety there. And the approach of the AI, as it were, in the solo version is sort of a blunt force is going to just deploy more ships than you're able to deploy and will overwhelm you in that sense. But if you just avoid the AI ships and instead try to game out the way in which the AI fleet is going to try to satisfy the victory conditions and then just focus on earning more money than they do at a regular clip, I found it pretty easy to avoid their problems. So the first thing that happened in my game, for example, was I I set out a jump point, and that's another great thing about A Billion Suns. You set out your deployment zones as you want in the middle of the game. I set up a jump point and I jumped in uh, a fighter wing consisting of a small number of fighters because, as you know, I'm a very conservative person and I started out conservatively. And in response, the AI jumped in a massive group of gunships. So I thought, hmm, well, this isn't going to go well. I responded with another small deployment and it responded with another massive deployment. And things were going really badly until I realized, wait a minute, it's not going to be able to satisfy many of the victory conditions at this rate. I can just go over here and leave them alone. And sure enough, that's what happened. So I, I don't want to be too down on the, the solo rules because, as I say, they're in beta. But the core system of A Billion Suns, the way combat is resolved, even though it's not primarily about combat, is lovely. It involves a number of trade-offs about what weapons you want to deploy against bigger ships, against smaller ships, and how the shields work. And all of this is is balanced with a minimum of cross-referencing. For example, the number of hit points you have is the number that you need to roll under to hit. So a fighter, which only has three hit points, you need to roll a three or less. Well, that obviously means you want a smaller die size. You want to hit it with, you can want to try to hit with D6s rather than D8s and D10s and D12s, which are probably going to miss. Similarly, shield values are a number under which you make to roll the shield save for anyone who's familiar with the, the, the benighted influence on tabletop gaming that is Warhammer 40k. So if I've got a cruiser, with a shield value of 5, obviously, I'm not going to be able to hit it with these 6 weapons very much because they're just going to be hitting on on 6 and lower. Well, actually, 5 and lower because the maximum number is always a dud. But if I start whapping you upside the head with D12-based weapons, suddenly your shields are going to be less effective. And all of this is handled really smoothly. I really like that. I'm get, I expressed concern last week about the contract system. It seemed a little bit cumbersome. The second play made things a little bit more familiar. And I really started to get a sense of the greater variety of the things you might see. You know, sci-fi trappings. There was a planet that had some rescue ships that were fleeing from the planet. And I had to protect them. Well, protect them better than my corporate opponent, that is. None of this is altruistic. And it became easier and smoother. One thing I will note, though, and this is very much uh, taxing the limits of my hobbyist endeavor. A Billion Suns does expect you to be able to field a borderline dizzying array of different kinds of things onto the table. It's not just that you have to pull out your space background, and I have a very cheap uh, Starfield uh, tablecloth that I use for space miniatures games, and that's fine. And it's going to expect you to deploy planets and asteroids and space kraken and facilities and prison ships and utility ships and nine different classes of military vessel. Now, a certain amount of fudging, obviously, is going to be necessary, because this is an indie miniatures game, and you can fudge as much as you like in an indie miniatures game. What was a Corvette in one session can easily be a destroyer in a different session. The difficulty starts coming, though, when the limits of your collection start influencing your gameplay decisions, and that part's a little awkward. Now, for many miniatures hobbyists, this is a virtue, not a problem, because this encourages them to go and get a whole bunch of stuff or kitbash a whole bunch of things. And I have enough things that I can steal from either Clips or Red Alert and other things that I can absolutely represent that number of, of different things. But it is taxing in terms of overall components. Again, this is not a fair comparison, and I'm not just comparing them because they're both by the same designer, but because it's one of my favorite miniatures games, it's not as easy to do as you would find in Gaslands. In Gaslands, you go to a grocery store, give them 99 cents, and congratulations, you have a combat unit that's ready to field on a tabletop. Of course, Gaslands needed custom movement templates and custom uh, maneuver dice, but that's a separate issue entirely. Anyway, uh, suffice to say that miniatures... A tabletop miniatures hobbying is uh, a marvelous opportunity for the crafty and a marvelous opportunity for me to exploit the crafty, which is definitely what I do. But I really like this system. It's fascinating. It gives you a lot of 
freedom. It is communicating a little bit more of that space sensibility that I was talking about, primarily, again, through the texture of the contracts. And I'm very much enjoying my time with a billion suns. And the tabletop simulator mod is out of gamma mode. It's it's the, the, the final version. And so I'm looking forward to giving that a, a, a try again as well. And that has been my uh, further experiences with a billion suns, interstellar fleet battles. I want to go all the way back to almost the beginning. And when you said you had to roll dice uh, less than their hit points, is that their potential hit points or their current hit points? Starting starting hit points. St- cur- oh, wait. Perfect. It, it's called a silhouette value. Gotcha. All right. Next game up is Hollertau, designed by Uwe Rosenberg and published by Lookout Games. You and I got to play this on Tabletop Simulator, and the, the mod is quite nice, and we had a great time playing it. At least I thought we did. It's one of these games where you're putting out workers, and it's a very interesting system where uh, there's, much like every Uwe Rosenberg, there's a plethora of worker placement areas, and it's sort of like a tiered system. If the if the space is empty, it will be one cube and then two cubes and three cubes. So up to three potential times it can be activated and gets more expensive each time. And this leads to very interesting decisions and the fact that it doesn't clear after every round. Only the top tier of certain ones get cleared. And, of course, you're breeding sheep because it's an Uwe Rosen- Rosenberg mm-hmm. game. And there's tons of different t- types of cards, like uh every turn sort of generating cards, end of game scoring cards, and then this interesting sliding these buildings along this track. You're sort of like breaking up the the earth and moving these stones and sort of sliding these things across in an, in an effort to get more victory points because the faster your buildings move over, the faster your main cottage moves across and you'll get more actions and more stuff. I really like it when a designer has enough of a signature that you can definitely tell it's from them. But at the same time, they iterate and innovate and sometimes even just flatly improve on their previous designs. And Uwe Rosenberg's Hallertau is very much among the Uwe Rosenbergiest game of his games that I've ever played. So I believe the term is Uviest. Uviest? Uveriest? Anyway, so I recognized elements from... Many, many differences of his games. For example, the, the Victory Condition reminds me an awful lot of Reichholt. It's a little more sophisticated. You have to pay specific recipes to move these buildings over, and that in turn can move your community center over, which is one of your chief areas to score. It has sheep, but it doesn't have sheep breeding. That was what I was expecting, though, right? Almost every Uwe Rosenberg game has, well, if you've got enough animals, they just breed by themselves. No, no, no. You had to liquor them up with milk first before they'd get it on, which I found, it was it, that was the least Uwe element of the Uwe Rosenberg experience. But the thing that was incredibly Uwe Rosenberg was, in a way that was less interesting than I wanted it to be, was the way crop rotation works. The game makes a big deal about how crop rotation is going to be a thing. Anytime you sow a field, it will generate resources and then get worse. Every time you leave a field fallow at the end of the round, it will improve itself. And I was really looking forward to that element. And I was disappointed. With only six rounds, and with a whole bunch of action spaces that can rejuvenate a field very, very easily, I didn't ever really feel that pressure to engage in anything even remotely resembling crop rotation. It was just, well, I'll I'll sow all these things, and, oh, the field's not good enough? Well, I'll I'll just spend an action to make the field good enough. Okay, fine. Yeah, if not good enough, just make another field that's, you know, starting out at top tier and, and plant there instead of or as well as. Exactly. But on the other hand, this is what's known as a twist. This is the M. Night Shyamalan element of this part of the, the of the discussion. I was not expecting to appreciate the card play very much because I had heard bad things about how, well, you know, you have to draw random cards and they're either going to work for you or not. But I, th- I thought, I, I sincerely thought that this is possibly the best integration of cards that Uwe Rosenberg has ever done in any of his worker placement games because Agricola I adore and is probably still my favorite Uwe Rosenberg game, but the cards always feel to me a little bit like a side thing entirely. You know, you go to a special space to deploy these cards at great expense, but it's something you almost always want to do. Like, the first action that people do is almost always put out a new occupation. And so you try to craft together a set of cards that will then make your worker spaces really efficient. Broadly speaking, this is an oversimplification, of course. But so they feel like it's just a different part. They influence each other, but they, they, they feel kind of ancillary. In the case of Hallertau, playing the cards is for free and can be done really dynamically at any point during the game. In fact, I had to say this to you several times. You kept saying, so I play this as part of an action. Like, no, 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 no. You play any card at any time you want. And a lot of them are just based on thresholds, not based on costs. 
I need to have six hops to play this card. I don't need to spend six hops. I need to have the six hops. And that'll give you bonus points or bonus income or some other benefit. And also will often let you draw another card. So without much difficulty, you can play to the cards you have, get new cards coming in in addition to the guaranteed one that you get every round. You can go get more if you're inclined, which sometimes we were, but not as a whole lot. And you end up navigating this card play that's more tightly integrated with your action selection and with your resource management. And that part in particular, I thought was, was a welcome change of pace because Uwe Rosenberg has been doing cards with a worker placement forever since Agricola. And he's been iterating on that. And I think we can agree that in A Feast for Odin, the cards feel very much like a tacked on afterthought. It's just not a huge deal, honestly. People often forget. It's like, oh, you went there. You get to play cards. Like, oh, really? Oh, let's, uh, uh I guess I'll play this one for two points whatever but here i really felt like the card play was was gone up to the next level i'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the topic yeah for sure i think in our game it was a little lopsided because there, because there's these tools you need throughout the game and i didn't get any cards that gave me tools and you got quite a few cards that gave you tools so in that case it was mm, not okay. fantastic but other than that, I agree with everything you said. It's sort of like you get these interesting combos going off where you play a card that gives you a sheep and now you have this other card that you needed the threshold of six sheep. And because this first card gave you six, you play that and that lets you draw another card, but lets you play another card and it moved the game along at a fantastic pace, I thought. It's unfortunate if, again, we only have one play to basic experience on. If the luck of the draw ends up being as determinative as some of Hallertau's critics have it to be, that would be a shame. Because I like the system. I like the way that it works fundamentally. If it is possible to really get a bad set of draws, and or if it is possible to get the one miracle draw that really bootstraps you in a way that other people don't, that's a, that's borderline tragic. But I'm very, very keen to explore Hallertau further. Agreed. And that was Holla at your Boy by Uvid Rosenberg. We also played a game of Guards of Atlantis 2, Tabletop MOBA. And one of the things that this is really emphasizing to me, repeated plays of Guards of Atlantis 2, which is, I, I think, to my mind, the absolute best of the MOBA games. Not necessarily in, in the way that it is precisely representative of a particular genre of PC game that I don't play a whole lot of, but rather just in the the quality of the strategic card play and the quality of the team play. Because most team play games, in my experience, don't have the requirement of that close level of cooperation. Take, for example, this is just a random example because I was... Uh, I, I had to sort out the new components to the new Total War expansion of Quartermaster General World War II. The Quartermaster General games, I adore... And they're all team play games, but I never really feel like I have to work with my teammate in a Quartermaster General game the same way that I do in a Guards of Atlantis game. And the other great thing about Guards of Atlantis 2 is the character differentiation. I get to, I love trying out new stuff. It's all wonderful. But again, to emphasize, and I, I keep saying this because as brilliant as I think Guards of Atlantis 2 is, it is not good for players with a low frustration threshold. It is ideal for players who can see a, the way a card works or see a card combo, get completely scuppered, be completely countered in what they were trying to do or utterly fail because they got outsmarted or outguessed and say, that was neat. I want to see how how I can overcome this rather than, oh, well, I wasted a turn. This game stinks, right? And I've been that guy, right? I play a card that I think is cool and it just fails to work because it's completely countered by another by an opponent's play and get it and get frustrated. I've absolutely been that guy before, but not in Guards of Atlantis. But I've seen it happen to other people in Guards of Atlantis. And honestly, to be frank, despite my love for the game, I cannot blame them because it is a tricky game where you have to get all your ducks in a row and then even then sometimes things aren't going to work. But those moments, Walker, where you've got your opponent just where you want them, and you think that there's a good chance you can completely counter what they're trying to do and it works, ah, delicious. And so... It is delicious. That is one of those things that keeps coming me back to Guards of Atlantis 2 with a smile on my face, even when, as recently happened, everything I wanted to do was countered, I was completely cornered at every turn, and my face was ground into the dirt. And not only are there, like, a plethora of characters... Every character has like so many different builds. I think almost like three different ways you can build every character or emphasize a certain power. Like, uh, or, you know, say, well, I'm going to give them all defensive bonuses this, this game or, or, or switch to attack or, you know, go down this different tree of how it interacts with their black card ability. It's, it's ridiculous how many different types of characters you can make. 
And every time you level up, it's a new opportunity to respec and to counter what your opponents have been doing. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And that's Guard of, of Atlantis. I sort of hinted that I played almost finished a uh, food chain magnet game and we did finally finish it. This is on board game core. They do a fantastic mod of food chain magnet. And like I said before, make sure you remember what version you're playing. <laughs> this is a food chain magnet is a great, uh, I don't, they always gets flack for its art. I think it's one of the fa- most fantastic pieces of art in the art industry. But I don't anyway. think it always gets flat for its art. I think some people, first of all, all splatter games, people complain about the price. And I'm of two minds about that. No need to get into that. I think the people who complain about the artwork in Food Chain Magnet are, number one, a vocal minority, and number two, completely off their rockers. Art is subjective, but they're wrong. Yeah, they just hold up a GMT game beside it, and you understand how much better it is. Oh, (laughs) come on! All right. In case some people don't know what Food Chain Magnet is, you're, like, building this sort of fast food chain empire you're putting out these restaurants you're trying to satisfy the needs of the community as as dictated by your marketing that you put out there unfortunately some other people have other ideas what needs to be marketed in the community (laughs) so just when you thought your cola burger empire is about to take control of the entire city a single ringing note across the radio waves comes across and and tells the people how delicious cold cold lemonade is (laughs) and suddenly all your plans go to naught and that is food chain magnet it's been a while since i played a splatter game i should really play a splatter game we should get in on our food chain funny business Quickly, lastly, for me, two very quick games. I always talk about Yokohama, designer Hayashi Hayashi, published by Tasty Mitchell Games. I just go back to this because every time I play it, I try a completely different strategy because there's so many different ways to play this game, and I enjoy it every time. This time, I decided to do nothing but fulfill contracts. It's going to be the contract guy. I looked at the the technologies that came up and says, oh, well, I always try to do, you know, customs or the church or some other thing it's like oh well this thing helps me with contracts i'll just sit there and do nothing but contracts the whole game and it worked out great love yokohama and underwater cities designed by vladimir suchi and put out by delicious games this one's getting a little tiring for Mm. some reason it's a very interesting puzzle about of uh you have this deck of cards and there are three different colors and they correspond to the three different colors of actions that you can take and you sort of have to match them up to sort of maximize your your efficiency right and you want to build this interesting network of underwater cities but it just feels as though you're you're just pushing towards the same goal every time and you're just trying to find different ways to get there. I don't know how to word it out properly, but I'm just not having as much fun as I did in my first few plays. Maybe I just have to revamp my strategy, maybe. And that is Underwater Cities. As I've commented before, I will always play a Vladimir Suki game once or twice, but somewhere after the second or third play, they all start to feel the same. And I just, my enthusiasm just plummets. Those are the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So it looks as though Dune is just giving out their franchise to whoever wants it. (laughs) Portal now has a Dune game coming out called Dune House Secrets. And it's based off of their uh, detective, a modern crime type games. Really? So now you get to, yeah, you get to to fight crime and find the, the secrets of Dune. Okay. That's going to be great, right? Sure. So, Russian Railroads, very interesting tracks on tracks on tracks game. Wanted to play it again. I've really wanted to try the German Railroads expansion. And both of these are very, very much out of print. There's also an American Railroads expansion. Well, Hansem Gluck, one of my favorite Eurogame publishers, is going to be publishing a an omnibus edition with the Russian, German, American, and a new one, Asian Railroads. And I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to that because Asia is my favorite country. And the Asian Railroad Network, because there's one is a fascinating little bit of infrastructure, what with it not existing. Uh, but anyway, we don't know a whole, whole lot about Asian railroads yet. I don't know. But I'm very keen to have these back on the market, and I'll probably pony up for a copy when it comes out, because another great thing about Hans and Gluck, they don't really do Kickstarters, so this will actually be a retail experience. Fancy that. I know, right? 
It's going to have all the bells and whistles that came out for Russian railroads. It's also going to have a solo mode now. And this is, this sort of like gives me the same feeling as the new Hansa Titanica big box, right? All that stuff that you couldn't get before. Now it's all in one box. I never had Russian railroads. I've been playing it a lot in the past few months and I was actually very excited to see this coming out because this is something I'm definitely going to pick up because I definitely want an actual physical copy of this fantastic game. Sangrata, Mark, we saw that. It's the stained glass window dice game. And you'd think, well, you know, it's a great game, but what does it need? Well, Mark, when you break stained glass, it's a permanent thing. It's like you've destroyed a legacy. <laughs> oh no no yeah yeah sagrada <laughs> legacy is coming out mark you know what because you get to yeah oh yeah everything's gotta it's either gotta be a campaign or a solo version or wow or legacy so now it's gonna have a legacy version i don't i i i, I just can't and lastly for me mark is there what's the what's the record for a game that's been rethemed multiple times like oh, completely geez. rethemed I don't know, probably so, most of Reiner Knizia's catalog. <laughs> well, here we go. Reiner Knizia had a game called Grand National Derby. Then it came out as Titan the Arena. Mm-hmm. Then it came out as Colossal Arena. And now it's going to be published by Plan B Games under the name of Equinox. You left out the, the, the fact that GMT had a sci-fi version of this same game. Well, there you go. I did not see that. Yeah. Have you ever played any of these games? I have. I, I did played the the Fantasy Flight Colossal Arena version. I quite like it. Colossal Arena is a good game. Agreed. And the the art for Equinox is mind blowingly awesome. So I'm definitely going to check it out. Finally, uh, we wanted to take a week off of Outrage because it's not pleasant for us. But of course, we're just tourists there, and it's not like we have to live there all the time. Unfortunately, like racialized and minority people do. As part of the fallout from the ever-evolving Phil Eklund situation, and I will act absolutely do a up- fuller update when there's more details to be had. It's a moving story. Jeff DeBoer, the founder and CEO of Fun Again, uh, decided that it would be a good idea to start harassing uh, Jess Cassidy with incredibly sexist messages. And he has now stepped down uh, as a result of fewer and internal pressure as CEO of Fun Again, which, yay for them, and pressure does actually work. And I, I do actually, I do absolutely want to stress that sexist harassment has absolutely no place in our hobby or indeed in any hobby or any aspect of life. But I just want to stress one other thing in the context of, of editorializing here. Additionally, there was an additional harm. And this is an example of someone in the industry, someone from a distribution company on behalf of a designer harassing a journalist that they had worked with in the past. And this is one of the reasons why we don't cultivate industry ties here at So Very Wrong About Games, and one of the reasons why we try to keep our editorial distance from both publishers and designers and as as well distributors, because it doesn't necessarily improve the our editorial stance to have these elaborate personal and professional relationships with these people whom we wish to cover. And I just want to stress that this is an example of someone trying to leverage their connection with who is essentially a board gaming journalist into getting her to change her stance on something. And that is super gross and super unacceptable. And I don't think we should tolerate that in addition to not tolerating the tone in which it was delivered. I would just like to say, essentially, that if Jeff DeBoer had cleaned up his language, tried to exert a similar amount of pressure without being a gross misogynist about it, it still would have been gross. Not as gross, obviously, and I'm not even saying that's the grossest thing. Let me be perfectly clear. But I just want to stress that this is a further example of the problematic editorial position that journalism can find itself in. And I think that it's great that through very difficult situations, we're slowly getting better. And I hope that this will lead to a a better working relationship between, again, ostensible board games journalists and commenters and the people they cover. And that is the news and why it sometimes really matters. Now, on to our feature game of the week, which is Tungaru. Tungaru was designed by Lewis Maltz and Stefan Maltz, published by Alley Cat Games uh, last year, in all the way back in 2020, so it's past, practically a classic now. Yeah, I don't know why we're playing these ancient games, Mark, but I'm sorry. 
Go what's, ahead. What's next? Moncala. Lewis Maltz and Stefan Maltz also co-designed Edo. Uh, this is not Yedo. This is Edo, the Queen Games release of 2012, not the worker placement game released shortly thereafter. Uh, they also co-designed Rococo with Matthias Kramer released later that year, and those are probably their two uh, most salient uh, releases up to that point. Uh, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary as to what one does in Tungaru? So in Tungaru, you're cruising around these islands, abducting different island-dwelling people, and forcing them to work to get you victory points. And when they have outlasted their usefulness, you throw them into the pit of victory points, where they'll still give you victory points. <laughs> oh my goodness! The first thing that I wanted to say about Tungaro <laughs> was that <laughs> I can understand why this kind of theming, because it, it's it's set in the Gilbert Islands, what at the time was was called Tungaro. It's it's um, it's in uh, Micronesia. That I can understand why these themes are really good for, especially Euro games. You know, Micronesia, Polynesia, Melanesia, even. Because what you can get is colonization and expansion and all those traditional things without colonialism, right? Because the indigenous peoples prior to European contact and even after European contact in some cases, you know, were expanding and developing trade networks and conquering in some instances. Uh, the classic example of this, I think, is the GMT games, uh, Conquest of Paradise that gives you this kind of similar structure of a three and a half XE kind of sort of empire building thing, but with any of the gross elements of forced colonial uh, colonialization. Instead, it was just, you know, colonization and settlement of unoccupied islands and atolls by indigenous peoples and then coming in, into conflict with other local uh, indigenous political and social and cultural alliances. And of course, Walker has to take that setting and make it sound super gross and incredibly exploitive, even though it wasn't. So uh, good on you, Walker. Uh, I, I live to give. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure we're going to be, we're not going to compare it a lot to uh, Concordia, but there are some very definite similarities with Concordia. It has this elaborate end game scoring mechanism where you're collecting all these things that sort of make up these set collections that multiply into more victory points. It also has this limited inventory system on your tableau where you only have certain, you know, uh, certain spaces where you're allowed to put inventory and then it has this you know the standard dropping off uh resources and grabbing resources like you do in concordia it also has a a movable focus of building right in concordia you move your settlers and your ships around and you build adjacent to them similarly in tangaro you have the ship that moves around and that's the location from which you apparently abduct locals you gross creepy man uh, in the in the game, you're hi- I didn't design the game. In the game, you're hiring nomads. That's oh. that's how they express it in the rulebook. And I should stress, actually, uh, minor note: I really didn't like the rulebook. It left a number of points of ambiguity. It was one of those cases where both of us would read a paragraph and we'd say, "Well, I mean, I think the natural interpretation, the natural implication, is this, but it doesn't say that outright. So let's just play it like this." And sure enough, when you go and check the the, the clarifications, it works as you thought it would. I was just a little disappointed that you had to engage in that level of interpretation. It does have the interesting first player mechanism where. Uh, you know, in reverse player order, you know, you're putting out your boats and you actually get to reserve the tiles because sometimes the placement of the tiles is some of the very important ones could be out there first and sort of in reverse turn order, you would like sort of block them off. And it sort of gives you that sort of Marco Polo feel where you really need to know what you're doing from the beginning of the game and sort of scan the board and sort of plan out your first couple of moves before you even get going. So in that, in that regard, it's probably not so great for, you know, beginners versus people who've played multiple times. It is absolutely a game where you need to hoover up as many nomads as possible. Because that, again, that, that's how you score points. It is possible to score points during the game, but usually it's just a little bit of a bonus. You're not going to win the game on the strength of that, it seems, most of the time. It's mostly going to be about these nomads. I liked this notion of reserving nomads, of, of, of calling dibs. I can understand why they didn't. it didn't recur over the course of the game, because it would really put some people behind the eight ball if they were surrounded by a whole bunch of reserved nomads. Someone could just sit there and just let it let it fester and not claim the person in time and, and, and leave someone with very, very few options. But I, I, I ended up not liking the player interaction a whole heck of a lot as a result, because what player interaction there is, and there's not a whole lot, uh, tends to resolve, uh, revolve around 
buying the nomads sooner than somebody else could. And the nomads all have a very particular cost. This one costs a coconut and a pearl. This one costs two fish and a shell. This one costs two pearls, whatever. And you usually don't have that much inventory hanging around. As you say, there's a limited inventory system. And if somebody buys the nomad you wanted to buy, well, the chances of you having the precise constellation necessary to go and buy that other thing, eh, usually not very hot. So that element, I think, didn't lead to a whole lot of quality interaction. It was a whole bunch of just exogenous accidental blocking that I didn't find particularly engaging. Yeah, that's what I have down here as well. There's the stealing of the tiles, stealing resources. There's a couple of leader cards, which we'll get to in a moment. Mm -hmm. There was uh, the beggar that let you steal resources from other players. There was the chief that would let you switch the nomads around before the other player could buy them. And then, like you said, you could. there was some blocking with ships sometimes, and there was also blocking with dice because there was some of the action spaces had limited number of spaces where the dice could go. And it did happen in one of our games where, you know, we couldn't do what we wanted because the space was blocked. But other than that, like you said, not much player interaction. Mostly what you're doing is dice placement, and the value of the die seldom matters all that much. Most of the time when you're doing a dice placement game, you try to have some element of the die value being a sort of good news, bad news situation. Again, the example of uh, most traditional uh, dice placement games... The higher the die is, the better the action will be, but it's expensive or something along that line. In here in Tungaru, it seemed mostly random. It's just some spaces had a specific die requirement. Some didn't. In fact, a lot didn't. So why they were dice at all, I wasn't really sure. Yeah, the dice, the whole dice thing in the entire game was completely odd to me. The fact that the leader rolls them and then everyone switches their dice to the same value that the leader has. And then, like you said, it, you pretty well got around to whatever you needed anyway, regardless of what the dice you rolled. It, the whole dice system seemed odd to me. I did like how other players copied the leader's roll. I just wish that the die values had been consequential, that's all. True. So then after you roll the dice to figure out what everyone has for the turn, then you get to pick a leader. So you have hand this hand of five different leader cards, and they all have their special ability, they all have all their special actions you can do on them, and they all have a free action that you can do on them as well. So you all pick secretly, you put it down, then everyone flips it up. And the other thing that happens with the leader cards is that after everyone's done their actions, either they've exhausted all their dice or they've used their settlers, which we'll talk about later, then you take the leader that you used and you pass it clockwise around the table. So the actual, your hand of leader cards will change every round. And I thought that was very interesting. And I liked that system a lot. I liked it more in concept than in execution. Here's why. One of the reasons why I found Tungaru very, very dull. I found all our playings of Tungaru incredibly boring and very, very straightforward and not particularly engaging in any, in any way. There were a couple moments of, of, of intrigue that I thought were interesting and I'll get, I'll get to those later. But at the end of the day, it all shook out to basically being every turn, no matter what you did, it was more or less a resource. Spend a die, get a resource. The card gives you a resource. So if you play the fisher, the fisher gives you a free fish. Okay, that's a resource. The beggar's special ability is you can hire a nomad for one less resource. Okay, that's a resource. You play the trader. The trader lets you do a free trade, which might be a resource. You know, And, and I, I don't object to games where primarily what you're doing is acquiring resources, but you had all these different special abilities, but they mostly just shook out to being another resource. The worker's special ability is the worker gives you another resource. when you. So here you are. You, you use a die for a resource. The card gives you a resource. You cash in two or three resources for a nomad, and then you just keep going. Spend the dice to get some resources. Cash in the resources for a nomad. Buy as many nomads as possible. Oh, that one I can't get? Well, I could get this one. It's five points instead of seven. Okay, well, I'll buy it anyway. True. I, I, the one part I did like about that is when you're, when you're getting these, uh, nomad tiles, I felt as though there was some decision, decision space there about which ones you took and where they were fresh from and where you're going to go next and sort of in what order to do all this and what, what sort of tiles your the next person was looking for and when the timing of when to take those tiles i thought that was very interesting as well so the specifics let's talk about the specific scoring combinatorics of the different nomads because that is definitely one of the areas where it felt felt the most like concordia because very much like in concordia every card you purchase has a scoring condition at the bottom and you score all your cards at the end of the game 
in Tangaro, every nomad has a scoring condition. And you don't use your nomads to do actions. You use your dice for them, but they score in that all of them will score at the end of the game. Usually the powers of the nomads aren't a huge deal. They give you a tiny bit of income, or they give you a little special ability, or once you can cash them in, to, which will basically save you a die, which will effectively be a resource anyway. Like I said, it all amounts to getting like another resource or something. And this is one area where I'm, where I'm perfectly willing to admit this is just something not for me. It avoids the trap of point salad. Right, where you get a couple points for this, a couple points for that, a couple points for the other, th- other thing. And it makes you feel as though you have more agency in that because you're setting your own endgame conditions for scoring. But right around when the mid-game happens, and I've bought seven nomads in total, and I'm not particularly inclined to start mathing out which action will give me the most marginal points or which nomad will give me the most marginal points, and I'm operating on some sort of broad background condition of I think I want more settlers to go out... Uh, at that point, I, I, the, the details start to fade into the background, and I'm just going into this cycle of endlessly buying as many nomads as I can. And it just doesn't grab me. I found it dull. Yeah, and I, I, I sort of felt that there was too, I hate when there's so much points at the end of the game where it's, I'm not sure if it's said anywhere in the rule book where you can look through someone's discard pile to see what nomads they have, but. It is one of the many points on which the rule book is silent. If anyone, start doing that then i don't think i'd play with that particular person very often but anyway i'll do you one further if anyone paused to do a full calculation as to whether the next marginal nomad would score them you know 12 points or 13 points i would stop playing with them because there's a lot of math involved in terms of gaming out what all these things are worth that's what i have to at the end of the game it's too mathy the other thing is we had a game where uh, one person was actually lapped on the scoreboard. The scoreboard goes up to a hundred. At the end of the game, someone had, uh, you know, 110 and the other person was still on three. And after end game scoring, the person that was at three ended up winning, even though the other person was already over a hundred points ahead. And that's, and when you have that many end game scoring points, I think it's too much. It's like another bunny kingdom, kingdom syndrome <laughs> where you just, where you have no idea. It's like you think you're doing well and you think everything's going well. And it's like, oh, suddenly, no, I guess I was playing really, really poorly and too bad. Eh, I don't really mind that. When there's not really much player interaction, I don't really mind all that much because there's no way to target your aggression anyway. So who cares if you know who's winning? I, I respect your preference, though, in terms of the arc of a game, in in terms of it unfolding its information in a more organic way rather than this huge dump of points at the end of the game. But talking about that session where someone was lapped, I, I actually think that that was to the game's credit because I fell into, a in that particular session, I fell into a pattern where I was just churning in resources for points. I'd acquired nomads that let me score resources for points, and I wanted to say, okay, I'm now in a position where nomads 1 and 2 give me the resources that I need for nomads 3 and 4 to convert to points. I have no reason to go and do anything else. If this strategy wins, if it is viable, then this is borderline degenerate, because I set up that combo at, like, round 3. So I just pumped that, and I knew that that session was going to be incredibly boring. I will not hold it against the game. And the fact that you won that session because you had purchased more nomads and actually gone and done things in the game rather than just sitting off in your corner constantly churning this internal point engine, I think is to the game's credit. And then I'm going to talk a bit about the, there's like a little bit of tableau building. I'm not saying it's huge tableau building, but there is a little bit, and it's semi-interesting, the fact that, like we said, you have limited inventory, so you get to open up an extra inventory spot. Where you have nomads, you only have a maximum of four nomads that you get to use, but only two available at the beginning. And then there is another line of monuments that you put out that will get you extra resources. And every time you get a nomad, you get to put out one of these monuments, which is uh, some Sometimes could be potentially a big scoring opportunity as well, because there's some nomads that will give you points based on how many monuments you have out. So I thought it was a little bit of interesting little <sighs> tableau building as well. I, I actually found that bit incredibly silly, because the, the, the parts where the nomads give you things, that part was fine. It was okay. I think they could have done a lot more with it, but it, it was fine. This idea where you have this board with various spots that are locked and you have to put out monuments in order to improve the quality of your board. This is something we see in Euro games all the time. You can do it to a little degree or a large degree, but, you know, games as different as Scythe and Terraforming Mars. And, sorry, Scythe and uh, Gaia Project or 
what's the fantasy version? Terra Mystica. You know, you know. I mean, we see this all the time, even Hansa Teutonica. You know, you, you, you remove pieces of wood from your board and the, the, your board gets better. In Tungaro, it's it's almost so trivial as to be offensive because, yes, in theory, you're locked to two nomad spaces at the beginning. But the first thing you do when you buy a nomad on an island where you have don't have a monument is you remove a monument. So you don't need to plan it out. You don't need to be proactive. You don't need to engage in opportunity costs about, oh, do we want to upgrade this thing or that other thing? It's like, no, do you have room for the nomad? Oh, I don't. Do you want the power? No? Oh, okay, then then go down the resource track. Alternatively, is there no room for the nomad and you want the power? Oh, I, I'll just use that monument then. Oh, look, I've got space now. It will come into play. It came into play a little bit for me was the fact that you can only put monuments out where you haven't already got a nomad. Right? Yeah, that's so the only time when a nomad matters. from this island. Right. So say if if a nomad just happens to get transferred to the island and I've already got a monument there, but my monuments are blocking my other spaces, I cannot get that nomad. I have to move away and get a nomad from somewhere else first to get, you know, to open up the spot. Sure, I thought that, that was kind of interesting. That is the only time that it matters. The rest of the time, it's incredibly trivial. I just, I was expecting there to be more of a trade-off, more of a balancing element, trying to have to worry about things like throughput or managing my tableau. And it was just the, the, the circumstances where I, where I, I cared at all what was happening with that were so minimal. I, I found it just another, another aspect that I didn't enjoy. I also thought it was way too long for the decisions that you got to make, right? You know, it usually breaks down to, you know, I need to get these nomads, so I'm getting resources to get the nomads. That's the game. And then for the the length of time it takes, I think it's too long for what it is. I agree entirely. Our games, in fairness, were roughly about an hour. But even given that, I felt the downtime. You know, a four or five player game where someone's just, okay, I'm going to place a die and get a coconut. Okay, well, I'm going to place a die and spend these two resources and buy a nomad, refresh the nomad. These were relatively fast turns, and I still was waiting for it to be my turn again. And I think that's just part and parcel of the fact that the game is smooth enough, but I just wasn't interested in what anyone else was doing, and I was barely interested in what I was doing. I mean, unless it's not perfectly clear, I found Tangaru very, very dull. If it were 25 minutes of dull, I would have still preferred that. I agree with you. It's, it's about an hour long, and it feels too long. That's that's a bad sign. And I have to say that this is a Kickstarter project, and I got the Kickstarter copy, and I want to say that the components look amazing. You get these little boats that the dice actually go in, uh, the player boards. Like we talked about, there's these different actions you can take, and the board is very much like Scythe. If you get to know what the iconography is on the board, it'll tell you exactly how the game is played, and you won't have to ask any more questions. Uh, it's a great production, that's for sure. Can I talk about the two things I enjoy? Yeah. Yeah, sure. sure. One thing that I enjoyed, and I don't, I don't know why, it was just possibly because I was just so desperate for any degree of excitement. There's this beggar card that will steal resources from your neighbors. And the neighbors get points and compensation. But the beggar cannot work against another beggar or against the chief. And instances where someone would play a beggar and be flanked by two chiefs, or when I would play a beggar at the same time that somebody else played a beggar at my neighbor, and seeing you know the consternation that would cause either on my part or somebody else, that I thought was fun. <laughs> I enjoyed those bits. I just want to flag those bits that I enjoy. And the other part that I thought was interesting was the sole element of the game that I thought broke the sort of stranglehold of the place that I get a resource problem. And that is how settlers work. Every player has three settlers. And one of the actions you can do is you can spend a couple fish and plop out a settler. And now the settlers are uh, an individual that you can tap every round to do one of two very specific things or move to a different island. So it doubles down on the spatial element a little bit in terms of being able to place things properly. It allows you to extend your reach past where your boat is. And they don't give you a free resource necessarily. They can't harvest resources the way your dice can. But they do force you to look more afield and be able to engage with more of the board. And that part I thought was genuinely cool, especially since putting out the settlers in the first place was a little bit of an opportunity cost, both in terms of the resources and in terms of the tempo that was going on, but it gave you more flexibility later on. That element of not quite infrastructure, not quite special powers, I thought really worked to, uh, to the game's advantage. It was probably one of my favorite elements of it. I also think it works great at different player camps as well. We played it at two-player, and even though the experience wasn't fantastic, it was the same. I felt it was sort of the same experience as it was at four. 
yeah, f- funnily enough, you, t- you take a Euro game with a practically no player interaction and they tend to scale really well. I'm sorry, was that too snarky? Not at all. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Walker. So to finish, to, to sum up, I am more than happy that I have a copy of Tengaru. I think it is a great introductory game. I think the, the art and the style of the whole board and how everything works together is a lot more welcoming than other Euros that look very dry and, and, you know, mechanical. This looks a little more warm and welcoming. And like I said, with the player boards and the actions all being there, I think it'll be a lot easier to teach and still be fun for people who, who don't play board games very often. If you want a colorful, accessible, fun game that is set in Micronesia, Polynesia, Melanesia, I suggest Blue Lagoon. I think Blue Lagoon is a fabulous intro game. It has incredible direct player interaction, still has a sense of scope, and it has this lovely theme of indigenous peoples uh, settling local atolls. If you want a game that is about resource management and is a little bit of a step up, I can recommend Concordia. I, I don't think Concordia is Matt Gertz's best game, but Matt Gertz is a genius, and even his not best game is still very, very good. And Concordia has lots of variant maps and a lot of really good decision making in it. If you want a crunchier kind of Micronesia, Polynesia, Melanesia experience, Conquest of Paradise is absolutely an option. As it is, uh, Tangaru failed to grab me except for brief fleeting moments of joy in mostly tedious 60 minutes. And that is Tungaru. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.